Section 28 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 3. Chaldean Civilization, Part 1. The Chaldean kings, unlike their contemporaries the pharaohs, rarely put forward any pretensions to divinity. They contented themselves with occupying an intermediate position between their subjects and the gods, and for the purpose of mediation they believed themselves to be endowed with powers not possessed by ordinary mortals. They sometimes designated themselves the sons of Ea, or of Ninsun, or some other deity, but this involved no belief in a divine parentage, and was merely pious hyperbole. They entertained no illusions with regard to any descent from a god, or even from one of his doubles, but they desired to be recognized as his vicegerents here below, as his prophets, his well-beloved, his pastors, elected by him to rule his human flocks, or as priests devotedly attached to his service. While, however, the ordinary priest chose for himself a single master to whom he devoted himself, the priest-king exercised universal sacerdotal functions, and claimed to be pontiff of all the national religions. His choice, naturally, was directed by preference to the patrons of his city, those who had raised his ancestors from the dust, and had exalted him to the supreme rank. But there were other divinities who claimed their share of his homage, and expected of him a devotion suited to their importance. If he had attempted to carry out these duties personally in detail, he would have had to spend his whole life at the foot of the altar, even when he had delegated as many of them as he could to the regular clergy, there still remained sufficient to occupy a large part of his time. Every month, every day, brought its inevitable round of sacrifices, prayers, and processions. On the first of the second Elul, the king of Babylon had to present a gazelle without blemish to sin. He then made an offering of his own choosing to Shamash, and cut the throats of his victims before the god. These ceremonies were repeated on the second without any alteration, but from the third to the twelfth they took place during the night, before the statues of Merodach and Ishtar, in turn with those of Nebo and Tashmit, of Malil and Ninlil, of Aemon and of Zirbanit, sometimes at the rising of a particular constellation, as, for instance, that of the great bear, or that of the sons of Ishtar, sometimes at the moment when the moon raised above the earth her luminous crown. On such a date a penitential psalm or a litany was to be recited. At another time it was forbidden to eat of meat, either cooked or smoked, to change the body linen, to wear white garments, to drink medicine, to sacrifice, to put forth an edict, or to drive out in a chariot. Not only at Babylon, but everywhere else, obedience to the religious rites weighed heavily on the local princes. At Uru, at Lagash, at Nippur, and in the ruling cities of Upper and Lower Chaldea. The king, as soon as he succeeded to the throne, repaired to the temple to receive his solemn investiture, which differed in form according to the gods he worshipped. At Babylon he addressed himself to the statue of Bel-Merodach in the first days of the month Nisan, which followed his accession, and he took him by the hands to do homage to him. From thenceforth he officiated for Merodach here below, and the scrupulously minute devotions, which daily occupied hours of his time, were so many acts of allegiance which his fealty as a vassal constrained him to perform to his suzerain. They were, in fact, analogous to the daily audiences demanded of a great lord by his steward, for the purpose of rendering his accounts and of informing him of current business. 
any interruption not justified by a matter of supreme importance would be liable to be interpreted as a want of respect, or as revealing an inclination to rebel. By neglecting the slightest ceremonial detail the king would arouse the suspicions of the gods, and excite their anger against himself and his subjects. The people had, therefore, a direct interest in his careful fulfillment of the priestly functions, and his piety was not the least of his virtues in their eyes. All other virtues, bravery, equity, justice, depended on it, and were only valuable from the divine aid which piety obtained for them. The gods and heroes of the earliest ages had taken upon themselves the tasks of protecting the faithful from all their enemies, whether men or beasts. If a lion decimated their flocks, or a urus of gigantic size devastated their crops, it was the king's duty to follow the example of his fabulous predecessors, and to set out and overcome them. The enterprise demanded all the more courage and supernatural help, since these beasts were believed to be no mere ordinary animals, but were looked on as instruments of divine wrath, the cause of which was often unknown, and whoever assailed these monsters provoked not only them but the god who instigated them. Piety and confidence in the patron of the city alone sustained the king when he set forth to drive the animal back to its lair. He engaged in close combat with it, and no sooner had he pierced it with his arrows or his lance, or felled it with an axe and dagger, than he hastened to pour a libation upon it, and to dedicate it as a trophy in one of the temples. His exalted position entailed on him no less perils in time of war. If he did not personally direct the first attacking column, he placed himself at the head of the band composed of the follower of the army, whose charge at an opportune moment was wont to secure the victory. What would have been the use of his valor, if the dread of the gods had not preceded his march, and if the light of their countenances had not struck terror into the ranks of the enemy? As soon as he had triumphed by their command, he sought before all else to reward them amply for the assistance they had given him. He poured a tithe of the spoil into the coffers of their treasury, he made over a part of the conquered country to their domain. He granted them a tale of the prisoners to cultivate their lands or to work at their buildings. Even the idols of the vanquished shared the fate of their people. The king tore them from the sanctuaries which had hitherto sheltered them, and took them as prisoners in his train to form a court of captive gods about his patron divinity. Shamash, the great judge of heaven, inspired him with justice, and the prosperity which his good administration obtained for the people was less the work of the sovereign than that of the immortals. We know too little of the inner family life of the kings to attempt to say how they were able to combine the strict sacerdotal obligations incumbent on them with the routine of daily life. We merely observe that on great days of festival or sacrifice, when they themselves officiated, they laid aside all the insignia of royalty during the ceremony and were clad as ordinary priests. We see them on such occasions represented with short-cut hair and naked breast, the loincloth about their waist, advancing foremost in the rank, carrying the heavily laden kufa, or reed basket, as if they were ordinary slaves, and as a fact they had for the moment put aside their sovereignty and were merely temple servants, or slaves appearing before their divine master to do his bidding, and disguising themselves for the nonce in the garb of servitors. The wives of the sovereign do not seem to have been invested with the semi-sacred character which led the Egyptian women to be associated with the devotions of men, and made them indispensable auxiliaries in all religious ceremonies. They did not, moreover, occupy that important position side by side with the man which the Egyptian law assigned to the queens of the pharaohs. 
whereas the monuments on the banks of the Nile reveal to us princesses sharing the throne of their husbands, whom they embrace with a gesture of frank affection, in Chaldea the wives of the prince, his mother, sisters, daughters, and even his slaves, remain invisible to posterity. The harem in which they were shut up by custom rarely opened its doors. The people seldom caught sight of them. Their relatives spoke of them as little as possible. Those in power avoided associating them in public acts of worship or government, and we could count on our fingers the number of those whom the inscriptions mentioned by name. Some of them were drawn from the noble families of the capital. Others came from the kingdoms of Chaldea or from foreign courts. A certain number never rose above the condition of mere concubines. Many assumed the title of queen, while almost all served as living pledges of allegiance made with rival states, or had been given as hostages at the concluding of a peace on the termination of war. As the kings, who put forward no pretensions to divine origin, were not constrained, after the fashion of the pharaohs, to marry their sisters in order to keep up the purity of their race, it was rare to find one among their wives who possessed an equal right to the crown with themselves. Such a case could be found only in troublous times, when an aspirant to the throne, of base extraction, legitimated his usurpation by marrying a sister or daughter of his predecessor. The original status of the mother almost always determined that of her children, and the sons of a princess were born princes, even if their father were of obscure or unknown origin. These princes exercised important functions at court, or they received possessions which they administered under the suzerainty of the head of the family. The daughters were given to foreign kings, or to scions of the most distinguished families. The sovereign was under no obligation to hand down his crown to any particular member of his family. The eldest son usually succeeded him, but the king could, if he preferred, select his favorite child as his successor, even if he happened to be the youngest, or the only one born of a slave. As soon as the sovereign had made known his will, the custom of primogeniture was set aside, and his word became law. We can well imagine the secret intrigues formed by both mothers and sons to curry favor with the father, and bias his choice. We can picture the jealousy with which they mutually watched each other, and the bitter hatred which any preference shown to one would arouse in the breasts of all the others. Often brothers, who had been disappointed in their expectations, would combine secretly against the chosen or supposed heir. A conspiracy would break out, and the people suddenly learned that their ruler of yesterday had died by the hand of an assassin, and that a new one filled his place. Sometimes discontent spread beyond the confines of the palace. The army became divided into two hostile camps. The citizens took the side of one or the other of the aspirants, and civil war raged for several years, till some decisive action brought it to a close. Meantime, tributary vassals took advantage of the consequent disorder to shake off the yoke. The Blamites and various neighboring cities joined in the dispute, and ranged themselves on the side of the party from which there was most to be gained. The victorious faction always had to pay dearly for this somewhat dubious help, and came out impoverished from the struggle. Such an internecine war often caused the downfall of a dynasty, at times, indeed, that of the entire state. End of section 28 Read by Professor Heather Mbye. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.